0: Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in.
1: Hi, this is Chad, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence, influence that we all want and need, And confident, so you can create those products that customers really love. And creating products that customers love, well, if you're like most product managers and innovators, that is your motivation to do great work. The work of product management. It's also our common thread, right? Don't you feel that? It's what distinguishes you as a product manager and joins you to other product managers. And it's a key characteristic of us as everyday innovators, Every day, we're looking around for problems that we can solve in ways that create more value for customers. It's what makes us everyday innovators. That means we have to understand customers' problems, what they want to accomplish, what they want to avoid, and how they want to feel. When we're really doing a good job at that, we know our customers better than they know themselves. Part of that job is asking customers questions, the right questions that help us discover information that ultimately leads to to those new products that they will love, or making our existing products even better so they'll love them more, and this is an area Rachel Wynn knows a good deal about. She is a product manager and communication expert who I met at the Rocky Mountain Product Camp in Denver, Colorado, and she joins us to share her guidelines for asking great questions, which she organizes into a framework of three areas, and they are grace, bias, and pivot. You'll find the summary of our discussion at theeveryinnovatorcom 192. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Rachel, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators. Thank you so much for having me. So our discussion is going to be focused about how we interview our customers so we can do a better job developing products that they actually love. But I'm curious about your background a little bit. I always like, like to make those connections, how people got into product management. It was accidental for many of us. You were a speech-language pathologist before this, which is something we share. I, I was never a speech-language pathologist. But I was in speech therapy until I was in the fifth grade. And as you might imagine, even the idea of doing this podcast much later in life was intimidating because I still have insecurities around my voice. And so it's been a useful exercise for me to go through. Tell us just about that work. Um, I'm, I'm curious how you got involved in that and how that ties together with product management.
2: Absolutely. Well, good news for you is I never worked with elementary school kids (laughs) and hardly ever worked on speech. As a speech-language pathologist, my expertise was in cognition, and I worked with adults predominantly. I worked in post-acute rehab, which basically means that someone would go to the hospital maybe after an injury, Hmm. brain injury or otherwise, a stroke, Parkinson's disease getting worse, something like that. And then we'd come to post-acute rehab when they weren't quite ready to go home yet and they needed rehabilitative therapy before they could go home successfully. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I worked. I helped people kind of bridge the gap to get back home and also worked in long-term care, which you may think of as nursing homes. Mm-hmm. And in, in that work, like I said, I specialized in cognition, did a little bit of speech and respiratory therapy, respiratory training kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, but mostly cognition, language, and swallowing disorders. Um, and how i got into product management from that is i decided to make a career move i couldn't find the work that i wanted in the boulder denver area hmm. and so i i love living in this area i wanted to stay here so i looked at okay what can i do here well there's there was lots of tech <laughs> so my husband was a back end developer at the time and he was like they need front end developers like crazy mm-hmm. so i started to learn how to code learned some basic HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and started going to meetups and talking to people and realized that I would be great in tech because I understand from my expertise in cognition and how people approach whatever stimuli, whether it's electronic or an environmental or people or anything and how they interact with that thing. And the more I talked to people about like why I thought I would be good at it and, you know, getting their feedback, someone said, have you ever heard of user experience design? I was like, no, what in the world is that? Mm-hmm. Learned what that was, and then really dug into that area. Um, and the first full-time job I took in tech was a hybrid role as a UX designer and product manager. And then once I got into that, role as a product or hybrid role, I loved the conversations that I had in my, wearing my product manager hat, mm-hmm. so switched into that.
1: Yeah, and that, co- that connection to cognition, right? How, how do we think about things and express things? And as you were describing your work as a language pathologist, you use the term bridge the gap right? That, that, mm-hmm. that you would help people bridge the gap. And that's something we do in the world of UX design and as product managers, we're bridging the gap between our customers and their needs and the actual product and the development team to get that together.
2: Absolutely. One of the things that I, I noticed as a speech pathologist is very seldom did my patients know exactly what they needed from me. Mm. I had to bridge the gap there too. Mm-hmm. They didn't, I mean, you thought speech pathology, you thought elementary school speech, But that's not at all what I did. If I tried to do that, i would be really bad at it. (laughs) Um, I have no skills in that area whatsoever. So what I had to do is I had to not go in with a menu of services I could offer them, but just listen to their problems and try to understand them and figure out what, what I could do to help them. Which is essentially what I'm doing now as a product manager.
1: Exactly. That's (laughs) what this is all about. And the focus of our topic will be how do we talk to our customers and ask the right questions so we can get better insights. And we met at the Rocky Mountain Product Camp this year up in Denver, Colorado. Uh, Also a beautiful area. You're you're up in Boulder and I'm just south there in Monument. And I can appreciate your kind of path through this towards product management because you have this superhero skill, which is you're very disarming. Right, And you smile <laughs> all the time when you talk to people. And I commented on this during after the presentation that I saw that you were a part of there. That no doubt must help you in your ability to interact with others because people will tell you things that they probably weren't prepared to tell you because you are very disarming. And I think that is a useful superhero skill as a product manager.
2: I don't know if it is or not, because that is just the way I am. I can't imagine not being this way. Right. <laughs> um, but I do feel that I often have insight into things that other people may not have insight, maybe just because I, maybe I listen better, or maybe people just tell me more things. I'm not sure what yeah, it is.
1: And probably a combination, actually. Yeah. When it comes to talking to our users, uh, this, this question comes up quite a bit, right? How how do we get insights from our users? And, and interviews is certainly one way to do that. Having discussions with them is a very effective way. You shared a framework at the conference, which I remember as GBP, Grace, Bias, and Pivot for understanding our customers' needs. Let's walk through that. Uh, tell us about grace. What, what does that mean when it comes to interviewing users?
2: Grace is a really pretty way of saying, get out of your own way. Um, we're really good at getting in our own ways. Um, and so I talked about a couple of things you can do to get out of your way. Um, the first thing you can do is to not bring negative emotions into your conversations. Huh. And I realized this when I was, and these are all things that I learned as a therapist that I've brought into my role as a um, product manager, um, and I first learned this as a therapist when I was going from one patient's room to the next patient's room. You know, I was seeing probably eight patients a day, typically, um, for about our 45, 40 to 60-minute sessions. Mm-hmm. And going from one room to another, I tend to be someone who absorbs other people's emotions. Mm-hmm. And so if I went into someone's room and they had gotten bad news, treatment wasn't going as well as they thought, yeah. they then, you know, I absorb that. And if I keep absorbing it, then I just go from one person's room and carrying this emotion with me. And then I deposit that emotion all over that person um, as I'm talking to them. And so I developed this routine, this ritual that I would do before I walked into a patient's room, I would look down at my clipboard and look at, you know, my schedule, how much time I was going to spend with them and your, and, um, what my goals were for that yeah. particular session. And at the same time, I would roll my shoulders back, make sure my head was over my shoulders instead yeah. of way out in front of me, and then just let the emotion from the last session wash away. And then I would walk into the next person's room as a clean slate, ready to interact with them. Um, works really well for me as a therapist. And I find myself doing the same thing with customer um Mm. interactions and user interactions too. Before I jump on a call with a customer, if you peer through the huddle room door in our office, you'll see me doing the same thing, rolling my shoulders back, pulling my head back, smile, smiling. A couple of weeks ago, we had our user conference and I was in our UX lab all day mm-hmm. um, and going back to back to back with patients. And did the same thing. As I'm resetting my prototype, I'm being sure to clear every the conversation that I had with the last person so I could start over with the next person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, that's something you can do to get out of your way.
1: That's a really good tip and something for us to be aware of because I've been in those back-to-back sessions, right, where we're doing customer interviews. And when we aren't hearing, so, sometimes bias is a thing that we certainly need to be worried about too, which we'll talk about next. But yeah, When we're not hearing what we want to hear, we're hearing like how terrible this actually, this experience is for people uh, through our product, that can get us down, right? And you're kind of in that mode like, wow, I hope the next one has something good to say about what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Whatever the feedback is, you can carry it forward. And I like this, you know, this reset that you you have developed. That's a really good advice. And you mentioned smiling again, which I just want to pick up on. (laughs) Because if we're not face-to-face, people still hear the smile in our voice. And that just helps mm-hmm. put people at ease a little bit and a little bit more at disarming. That's good advice to do, have some kind of routine to reset in between interviews.
2: Yeah, absolutely. As a speech-language pathologist, I do know that the muscles that are connected to how you smile and how your voice is basically created within your vote, within your voice box. They're connected. So Hmm. if you're smiling like authentically, then it's going to change the way your voice sounds. Um, And so you can't really fake it. You have to like really feel it. So that reset's important to get you there.
1: Very good. The two go together. Mm -hmm. Anything else on Grace you wanted to address?
2: Yeah. I mean, facial expressions and body language are a huge piece of that. Hmm. Um, I use, if you see me in the huddle room and I am not on video with the customer, I'm still using my hands. I'm still, Gesturing, I'm still making sure my face is responding so that I'm 100% engaged. It's a way for me to stay engaged and also for that to carry over in my voice. Hmm. Um, Another thing that I think is important is to know your communication tendencies. And none of us are perfect communicators or ever will be because we are humans. Um, And I know I have a tendency to rush through things because I don't want to waste people's time and as i've talked to other people about this other people will will say that they're fact checkers as they listen to customers they're like oh well we can't do that we could do that that's not true uh-huh. and it's it really doesn't matter I mean, so you have to tell yourself a story so that your commu- so you can get past those barriers that would help you to communicate successfully so fact checkers could tell themselves a story that the truth doesn't matter because it really doesn't it's perception that matters and you just need to understand that person's perspective and and me as the one who rushes because I don't want to waste time, I tell myself the story that I'm just having coffee with whoever I'm talking with. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have any meetings after this. All I'm going to do after this is take a walk. I've got like lunch scheduled or something. I don't need to rush anywhere. And then I, I schedule accordingly so that that is a true story for the most part. <laughs> but you know, figure out what your communication tendencies are and then tell, your, tell yourself a story so that you can kind of negate those when they're bad um, tendencies.
1: Good tip. It really comes down to being an active listener and staying involved in that, that discussion and not having some other agenda, right, that's going on inside your brain. Mm-hmm. So some people are probably asking this as you talk about this, the huddle room you, you've referred to a couple times. What is your huddle room?
2: Oh, in our office, we have these... Um we have kind of a modern designed office. So there are tiny little rooms that have maybe one or two chairs. Some comes, they're called phone booths hmm. and are held rooms if they're meant for like two people, but ours have like a lot of glass on the outside. So it, they're kind of like fishbowls. Um, so I'll be on a phone call with the, conver- with the customer. And if anyone walks by, they can see me smiling and gesturing as I'm mm-hmm. going along.
1: Excellent. Good. And this is where you have the conversation with the customers. Yep. Anything else on grace?
2: No, nothing. Um, nothing else right there. Just, okay.
1: Really good points for
2: Ways to get out of your way.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and not walk in with, with an agenda, just there to be engaged with the customer and listening to them. So that takes us to the B bias.
2: Bias is really just around asking those questions. When I was talking to people about this talk that I was going to do at Rocky Mountain product camp, um, a lot of people were like, Oh, questions, you know? And I, I titled the talk as the art of asking questions because I wanted people to think, you know, when people think of talking to users, they think of asking questions, mm-hmm. and when I think of talking to users, I think of listening. And so, you should ask questions in such a way that sets yourself up to listen really well, and that includes asking questions that don't have bias. So, you mentioned you know the bias you might experience if you're talking to people back to back, and like you know bringing in like the assumptions of like the previous people you would talk to into the conversation you're going into um, with the next person. I mean, if you think you know what that person is going to say, then you probably shouldn't ask that question to that person. You should ask something else or ask someone else, because if you're getting information, you already know it's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but some ways that you can open that situation up so you're getting information that might be unexpected is to ask questions that avoid bias. And that includes leading bias, which subtly, subtly prompts people to answer in a specific way, right. or... Loaded questions, which force people to answer in a specific way, or double-barrel questions, which is when you ask two questions at once. So if I asked you, which of these strategies do you use for meal planning and grocery shopping? Well, you may use different strategies for both tasks. And so that becomes a more difficult question to get good insights from.
1: So there is an art to this. And it sounds like mastering the art really has to do with being prepared to listen, to set yourself up to listen well.
2: Absolutely. One of the things I talked about, um, at Rocky Rotten product camp was number one tip for asking good questions is to stop talking, like to literally say nothing else. It's a little awkward when there's silence, but if you can embrace that awkwardness, or if you really need to fill it, fill it with something that's just like, yes, your audio connection is still good. (laughs) We're like, Oh, that's interesting. And then let there be a pause That person will want to fill that silence. And sometimes that person needs room to do their cognitive processing. You know, Mm -hmm. they said it was top of mind. There might be something underneath that that's really insightful. So, if you stop talking, you'll get to that.
1: Yeah. When there's silence, there's uncomfortableness that can enter into the the, the experience, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, people will step into that silence if you just give them the opportunity some people are much more introspective and reflective, and they need that time. And they'll surprise you, you know, when there's several seconds of pause, and they'll come back with some really helpful information. And mm-hmm. they'll think back to maybe a specific instance and, and share a good story, a good situation with you.
2: Absolutely. Those specific examples are so helpful and often aren't top of mind. Yeah. So, if you give them the time, you can get those. Good point.
1: I think bias is a critical issue for us when we're talking to customers, because many of us will go into a situation wanting a certain outcome, or we're looking for evidence to support our preconceived notions of where we're going next, right? We we expect the product to do these things in the next version, and we're looking for evidence to support that. We're almost always looking for evidence in, in some way. Stepping back and recognizing that, and knowing that we just want to get the raw information, get the insights into customers aren't really important. There was one product manager, senior product manager at our organization, who at least was transparent that he was indeed looking for evidence. Like, okay, I heard we need these three things done. These are the three things I'm looking for. These are This is what we're going to do. When we were all aware that there were other things that, that were more important to the customer. Um, mm-hmm. So at least he acknowledged his bias, but I, <laughs> I think that's a really dangerous place to be when we're leading with an expectation
2: definitely when i was in graduate school i worked in multiple research labs and when you're doing research your job is to form a hypothesis and then set up an experiment mm-hmm. to in, in order to reject that hypothesis in order to prove it absolutely untrue and so i took that into working with patients i took i take that into talking to customers and users now I definitely, my job isn't to have all the right answers. My job is to discover the right answers and recognize them when I see them. And so I, I try to never go into a situation thinking, yeah, I, I know exactly what we should do here.
1: Right. The people that seem to be the very best at this, at, at just you know, knowing what the customer wants, we're maybe right half the time, actually, at, mm-hmm. at, at the best. And we need the deeper insights from the customer and not lead with our expectations.
2: Absolutely.
0: We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. This episode of The Everyday Innovator is brought to you by Product Innovation Educators, your one place for online training to make the move from product manager to product master. When you enroll in one of our online courses, it's like having Chad McAllister as your personal coach. In each course, you get video lessons, added resources, and a private community for collaboration with other product managers and innovators. And, of course, you get direct access to Chad, who will answer your questions and get you heading in the right direction. Past students tell us the concepts, practices, and tools are valuable, but the real benefits they gain are being more confident, increasing their influence in their organization, and generating greater success for themselves and their company. There are four levels of training to become a product master. Find your level now. Get started by going to TheEverydayInnovator.com forward slash master. Your one place to become a product master. TheEverydayInnovator.com forward slash master. Don't wait. Get started now.
1: So we're up to the P now. We got Grace, Bias, and now Pivot. What's that about?
2: Pivoting is really about letting that user lead. So I started out with grace of things that you can do kind of ahead of time to get out of your own way. Bias is about how you bring up the topic, you bring up the question in a way that invites that person to have really any answers correct. And then pivoting is about letting that user lead. So have you ever found yourself talking to a user hoping you'd get um, information about, let's say, Apple's? And then you find out they really hate apples, that they're, they're just not going to be a good source. They're not mm-hmm. going to be a good resource for what you're looking for. Um, so what do you do in those situations? I mean, you could just say, okay, you know, this isn't what I need and, you know, save your time. But if I've got that, if I'm talking to a user, um, most, most of my conversations are on the phone. There are some I do face to face and otherwise, but, um, I'm talking to my user on the phone, what I want to do at the end of that call, my goal is to have them feel like they contributed, that it was a positive experience for them, because mm-hmm. I'm probably going to want to talk to them later. So if I find out they don't know about apples, but they know about oranges and they know about some other things, and I really want to know about apples, then, you know, I'm not going to dig into apples. I'll dig into kind of more their general experiences with fruit. So, like if I have another fruit-related problem later, then I'll know, oh, this person knows about oranges and bananas. That's going to be a great person for me to talk to. Hmm. When I email them to set up a call, they're going to say, oh, it's fun to talk to Rachel. So, sure, I'll set some time on my calendar and talk to her again.
1: So, you're keeping track of potential resources for the future, too. Absolutely. People that might be useful about other issues.
2: Yeah, I frequently will follow up with folks. Um, as I'm investigating something, I might write down a note and like, okay, I don't think that's the direction we need to go into, but then I realize later it is. And so then I might respond back to them and so, and ask for some more clarifying, more information on that. So if I haven't left them with a positive experience, then I've just, I have dead end now. Um, and so I want to make sure I'm constantly having those positive interactions with people so that they'll, be willing to talk to me or sometimes I'll find out that that customer would be awesome for one of my colleagues to talk to because mm. they work on, they're more focused on that area where they're working on um, that product. And so then I'll be able to pass them off to the person and say, this person's awesome. They're great. They knew this, this, and this, and set them up. And as the two will have a positive interaction as mm-hmm. well. Um, but some things you can do to pivot um, is you can go the direction the is going where their expertise is. Like I said, and sometimes I find myself in conversations where it's like, okay, they have the ex- they have the expertise and experience I'm looking for, but they really want to tell me about how much they hate this other thing that I can't fix. <laughs> um, that it, that's a you know due to technical feasibility or something like that, or they're just really frustrated about something. And so I make sure that I listen and acknowledge what they're saying. Um, And then, you know, to segue, that's another way you can pivot to continue to get the most from that conversation. Um, And then sometimes I'll just ask for advice from people, which isn't usually the best way to ask questions because you're setting someone up for bias. You might be asking them to predict the future, but if it can get you kind of back on track and have that good rapport where you can get back to the topic at hand, um, it's something that I'll throw out there. Um, And then another thing that I like to do that I have been doing since that, that I've trained in tons of communication instances is one of the improv strategies. Have you ever been to an improv show?
1: I have been an improv show and I have taken an improv class, which was my my stretch activity to get more comfortable Sweet. in the moment. Right.
2: Awesome. That's great. So you probably learned about yes and communication.
1: Oh, yes and is great. And uh yeah. Pixar calls it plusing, right? The their approach yeah. to plusing ideas. There's
2: just just adding on, for those of you who haven't been to an improv show, um, it's it's awesome because there's two people, maybe more on a stage, and there's nothing else. There's no context. And you have to kind of just make it up as you go along. And you have to get in sync with the person that you're talking to. So if that person says, oh, hey, look at this apple. And you say, no, that's an orange. Um, The conversation ends. But if that person says, hey, look at this apple. And you say, oh, and there's more in the basket behind you. We could make apple pie. Then the conversation continues. And so that's something, it's a a game I like to play that I teach a lot. When I was doing dementia communication strategies, I still teach classes with the Alzheimer's association. Hmm. Um, I always talk to people about this because the goal is just the interaction and it's kind of a, game that you can play where the truth doesn't matter it really matter it doesn't matter as much as you think it might it's all about understanding that person's story and connecting with them Mm -hmm. you gain so much from that your quantitative data is going to tell you the truth but if you want to understand the experience and the problems people are facing that's where your qualitative interview data is going to fill in the gap and so the truth doesn't matter you got quant data for that
1: that's uh, really good advice and it's a good tip the the yes and just keep a conversation moving forward
2: it's it's super fun. It, you can go into like the most difficult conversations with that strategy and have a great time.
1: Key things that that you shared there, sometimes the outrage comes up in the discussion, right? If we're talking to an existing customer and they're really upset about some capability that we don't have or isn't working right for them or something, right? Mm-hmm. You're not gonna get any further with that person until they have a moment to vent, to express their feelings. Yeah. And in general, for a lot of people in product management, just talking to customers the first few times that they have to do that, that's really intimidating. Most of us aren't wired to do that. But a lot of people, they they share discomfort with having to do this. And part of it is not knowing what questions to ask, not really knowing what they're looking for, and this issue of they might be mad, right? Some customers are going to express frustration. And having been in that situation, you learn, you just let them vent, let them yell, let them do what they have to do, for a while. Mm -hmm. And then they'll get that out. And then they're going to be more willing to help you with what you're trying to accomplish after that's done. And you might even get to a point to figure out that what they're really upset about is really a minor issue. And maybe Mm -hmm. even there is a workaround that they're not not aware of and you kind of help them with that. Absolutely. Okay, so pivoting, let the user lead. And uh, you mentioned tracking people. How are you keeping track of the discussions and People that you might want to use in the future. You have a CRM system that you're putting data into, or just how, how do you mechanically do this?
2: I have nothing fancy like that. I predominantly use documents that, like collaborative documents, we use Quip or Google Docs, would be something mm-hmm. similar. Um, where I have just a giant document of customer interactions where all of my notes go into that. And so if I ever want to find out about something later in the future, I might have had a note on that. I can just search the entire thing and look hmm. for that and dig up, the, dig up those notes when I need them.
1: Yep. Simple system. I like simple mm-hmm. systems that work for you and you have the information to go back to. Okay. Mm-hmm. So grace, bias, and pivot. I'm curious, do you have any favorite questions that you like to include as part of interviews?
2: With customers? Yeah,
1: yeah, you know, go-to questions.
2: So I work for a data analytics company, and we have a product that allows people to manage their data, gather insights from their data. And so I always try to, when I start customer interviews, if it's someone I haven't talked to before and we're not familiar with each other, I ask about um, how long they've used the product, and then I ask them what problems they solve using the products. And that's kind of a question I use to prime the situation that I'm not looking for their job title or Mm -hmm. specific bullet items. Like I want to know like, what are, how do they find value out of it? Um, And I find that asking that question kind of helps me get to prime them to have that continued conversation. But in terms of specific questions, I let the user lead as much as possible. So there's, I don't have a bank of questions that I frequently go to, Uh but I will ask questions like, you know, tell me more about this. I, I ask clarifying questions a lot. I paraphrase and say, oh, did you mean this? Or so if I understand it correct. Um, you do this, this, and this. Is, is that right? Or am I missing something? Um, and so I, I make sure the clarifying questions aren't testing to see whether or not they communicated it well enough to me, but whether I understood it well mm-hmm. enough. Um, so that if they need to clarify, they don't feel like they're at fault for any reason. It's, it's just me who just didn't understand it because it's new to me. Right. Um, I, you know, I'm not working with them every single day. Um, and so those are ways that I ask questions specifically uh, to help them lead and to keep my bias out of it.
1: Which I think is really helpful. People often ask for a script, like, okay, I'm going to do a customer interview. What are the questions I should ask? And, and I know some professionals in the space, they have their six standard sort of questions you know, that they mm-hmm. go to. I like your approach very much. And it's aligned with how I like to talk to customers. And that question that you, asked, you know, what problems do they solve using the product? That gets them started in telling about stories And Mm they're in specific situations and scenarios. And I think when we get specific stories being told, we can dig into, you know, there's gold in those stories to have deeper insights into how they're actually using the product and things that we might be able to do to add more value to what they're trying to accomplish.
2: Absolutely. I sometimes, I have at times written down, you know, a script and questions, but then I find I never go off of it. Mm -hmm. But I find that writing down questions ahead of time is good practice for people if you need to practice writing unbiased questions because Mm. a lot of times we have a bias or something in our head and we ask the question from that context. So if you practice writing it down and say, okay, am I leading the person? Is this loaded in any way? Then it's a way for you to practice. And there's tons of science to show that just writing it down, even if you never look at it again, helps to prepare you for whatever Mm. task you're getting ready to do. So sometimes I'll do that. If I do write questions down, Now, kind of as a script, it's mostly, what do I want to learn from this person? And they're just bullet items Mm -hmm. rather than specific questions.
1: Yeah, really good advice. And this is something we can practice with our colleagues, with our friends, over any topic, right? An experience that someone's had with a favorite product. Mm -hmm. So, we don't have to go in cold with customers. We can get some experience just with colleagues. Excellent. Good insights about grace, bias, and pivot. Good framework for helping us to have better interactions with our customers when we are in those kind of customer user interview situations. And as listeners know, I love a good innovation quote. Uh, What did you pull out for us and why did you choose that one?
2: Well, I've got one on my refrigerator and it's, it's a magnet that I got and I've, it's been up there. I don't know how many years it's been on my refrigerator, but every time I look at it, I read it a different way. Hmm. And the quote is proceed as if success is inevitable and it's attributed to unknown Sometimes when I look at this, I read it as, all right, it's going to work out. You're going to get what you need. It's going to be the way you expect. You're worrying too much. Sometimes when I look at it, I'm like, well, it's either going to go A or B. And either one of them, I will learn something from Hmm. and I will find success. And so it's just the journey is just going to be a little longer than what I thought it was going to be. And I find it very helpful for persevering through challenges, whether they be at work or in personal life.
1: Very good quote. I enjoy that one. There's this one that I like that is fall down seven times, get up eight. Mm-hmm. There's that notion of we're learning in the process that the journey is really the experience of learning and the destination is often overrated. <laughs> so, I, I mm-hmm. enjoy the journey. Thanks for sharing that quote with us. If people want to find out more just about the work that you're doing, make a connection with you, what's a good way to do that?
2: Um, you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter and at, it's at Rachel M. Wynn.
1: Great. And I'll put the links inside the show notes to make that easy for everyone to find. Rachel, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for sharing information about how we get a better interviews with users.
2: All right. Thank you. It's a pleasure.
1: Wow. Thanks again for listening to the Everyday Innovator. This is where you make your move from product manager to product master, gaining the influence and confidence you need to create products customers love. I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Rachel. I found some really good points in there about being able to better ask questions, ask better questions of customers So indeed, we can create products that customers love. You'll find the summary of that discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 192. Keep innovating.
0: Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.